And I'm going to ask that you open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 17 this morning. Our text we're going to be looking at is verses 13 through 17. Uh, but 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, we'll be reading verses 11 through 17. And I want to, as you're turning there, read another passage for us just to put into our uh, hearts and attitudes this morning uh, to prepare us. Because what I'm going to talk about this morning Uh, for many, will strike to be almost foolish in the way of the world. And I want to remind us that as Christians, that 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 reminds us that the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. What I'm going to share today is going to sound pretty foolish to the world but it's that which will become the very power of which we are able to stand and live our lives. So let's remember that as we look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 17. I'm going to ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word. If you need a Bible, you can find this passage in the Pew Bible in front of you on page 1015. 1015. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses, uh, verses 11 through 17. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the governor I'm sorry, as as emperor, as supreme, or to the governors as sent to him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For it is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God, honor the emperor. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you, Lord. We have sung your praises. We have heard of your ministry, Lord, in a place far from here, in a place like Uganda. And we recognize, Lord, that this passage, this word in our hands is not an American text. Lord, your word was living and active long before the founding fathers of this country uh, put pen to paper but that we are a people of God from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Remind us of that truth this morning. Remind us that your word is bigger than our democracy. Remind us that your ways are bigger than the American way. Remind us, Lord, that you have called us to live, no matter how we feel on a subject, you have called us to live in holiness so that our lives may bring glory to you. Lord, these words are going to be hard. They're hard for your uh, servant this morning because, Lord, I look at the way we pursue the issue of politics and the way that we pursue the subject matter of government and submission, and it strikes at the very heart of what I call freedom, what I call independence. But, Lord, let us push away what we think is human independence and remain steadfast independence on you and your word. So Lord, I pray that you'd speak through your, your servant this morning. I pray that you'd speak to your people. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Over the last few weeks, we have been studying this series in First Peter, and we've been learning over these last couple of weeks what it means to be the people of God. We've been reminded how we are to live differently in this world, not pursuing the thoughts and patterns, the practices and pursuits of the world, even though they may be incredibly appealing to us. But Peter reminds us in verse 11, these pleasures and pursuits wage war against our soul. And so God's plan within this is that his people would band together, that they would love and serve one another with one goal in mind, and that you and I would become a more holy and righteous people as we spur one another on towards love and good deeds. And yet this wasn't something that we were going to be able to produce on our own. This holiness and righteousness that was to be lived out in our lives took place because of the foreknowledge of God the Father, because of the sanctifying work of the Spirit, 
and according to uh, the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, Peter says in verse 1 of chapter 1, that you and I no longer have to try to figure out how to be holy on our own, but now based on the holiness of God and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, you and I now are sent out into the world to live holy lives. That as we have found the light and live in light of the truth of Scripture, that we need to understand that in this world there will be an alienation. Now Peter's audience originally was experiencing this alienation. They were being seen as aliens and strangers, far greater ways uh, than we do today. If you think that people think you're weird because of your Christian beliefs today, in your workplace or in your school or in your neighborhood or family, uh, you're going to hear some things that I'm sure you've never been accused of. Because in the days of Peter, the original readers were dealing on a daily basis with some pretty horrific accusations. According to ancient historical writings, unbelievers accused Christians, first of all, of cannibalism. Because they gathered around a table and they partook of the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And so have you been, because you partake in communion at work, and someone says, hey, that's that cannibal. That's that guy that eats the flesh and drinks the blood of a man who lived 2,000 years ago. They were viewed as insurrectionists, revolutionaries, because they would only call Jesus their only Lord, while the rest of the world called their Lord Caesar. Now, if you think that was bad, there were other things. They were viewed as homewreckers, because of the turmoil that would ensue when one of the people in the family would come to know Jesus and the radical change it would do in their lives, where people would say, if you become a Christian, you'll ruin your home, you will ruin the family dynamic that is there. They were also accused of incest because they would speak openly to each other and calling them brother and sister. These are the things that were going on in Peter's day. And Peter's people who were reading this message, this writing, this letter, were enduring great struggles. So notice that their standing would be totally affected. Employers wouldn't want to hire them. People wouldn't want to be around them. And so when we think that we've had persecution, when we've had trouble, we need to understand that they were truly alienated because of their walk with Jesus Christ. And the early church in those early years was not only in the world, but they were enduring the hostility of that world each and every day. The only way to deny the charges, Peter says, was to live a godly life, to live a virtuous life, which would basically shut the mouths of the critics of having any legitimate accusation against them. So they wanted to live a life that was so rich in spiritual quality that there was nothing that anybody could ever use to slander them. This is what Peter is saying. Can I suggest to you this morning that the hostility towards Christians is still there? It may not be as big and as upfront as it was in Peter's day, but men and women still hate God. They still reject Jesus. Maybe the form has changed a little bit. Maybe they're a little more tolerant of religious uh, systems of Christianity, but they're no more tolerant of the truth of righteousness you see it every time that we talk about where we stand on particular issues. People begin to challenge us. We're called bigots and haters. And so the challenge for us as Christians as we read this text is we are still aliens and strangers in this land. But we are to be different. We are to be citizens who live a life that is above and out of this world in many ways. Yet we are called to live in the world. And here's the problem. There's a challenge for us. Though we are to live in such a way that in spite of all of the false accusations around us about who Christians are, all the hostility and hatred, we must turn the hearts of people back to Christ through the evident transformation of God in our lives. What he's saying is, live such good lives that though they accuse us of all kinds of wrong, they'll glorify God. So Peter has this in mind. He wants to remind them, that there is a twofold reason for all of this. We want to shut the mouths of those who accuse us of doing wrong, and we want to bring glory to God. It's because of all this bad press that, that for the Christians that Peter now is speaking words that need to be heard loud and clear. 
Peter's going to deal with the subject of submission, something that is almost a four-letter word in our day and age. He's going to speak about submission because it is our submission even to the hardest of leaders that will allow us to bring glory to God. But here is the inherent struggle. You see, we see ourselves as aliens and strangers. We see ourselves not wanting to be a part of the world, and in one sense, that's good. But the danger is, is that we can remove ourselves from the, all that the world is. And we can begin to, if you will, put ourselves into a bubble and to protect ourselves from all the ills of the world. But what Peter says is very clear. Serve God and honor him as you live in this world. As you go about your life in this world, you honor him by honoring those who are around you. Some of us as Christians have protected ourselves and put a bubble around our lives that we live in isolation from the rest of the world. That's not found in New Testament Christianity. New Testament Christianity is, I live in a sinful world, yet I will not participate in the sin. I will live lives amongst my community so that they will see what true Christianity is all about. I'll have them as my friends. I'll engage with them as business individuals. I will live life with them, but I will live life in accordance to the Scriptures. While it's true we need to protect ourselves from the pursuits of this world, we must also strive with great energy and effort to reach the world for Christ. And this is what Peter says. But to be able to do this, Peter is going to teach us on the subject of submission. And what he wants us to know is that as we balance our freedom with our faith, we're going to need to understand some things from this text. And the first thing we need to understand is what I call the government's authority. The government's authority. Notice in the text this morning as we get into this, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether it is to be the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. Now let's stop here for a moment. Growing up, one of the most cardinal uh, sins of any preacher was to preach on the subject of money. He just didn't do it. Every time I heard a preacher preach on money, he, he would apologize for it. He would give caveats to it. But I will tell you a close second these days is to talk on the subject of politics and government. I find it funny that it's hard to preach or to listen to these things if, if we are in a people who love the scriptures as much as Village Bible Church does. And it makes the subject of money and government a whole lot easier to preach because the Bible talks about those two subjects all the time. And it's clear there's no issue that makes it difficult to understand the truths that we're talking about. The Bible's completely clear on each of those. And so we need to ask the Lord to open our hearts and minds to this subject matter of government this morning. You see, because with money and government, we have the way as listeners in a message to say, well, those two things, they're mine. Preacher, you can talk about holiness, and preacher, you can tell me not to lie and steal, but preacher, stay away from my money. It's mine. I'll tell you to read the book. You might get a different story. But preacher, stay away from my politics. You can't have that. That's mine. But brothers and sisters, the Bible tells us over and over again that the use of our money and the pursuing of our politics and the respect we are to give the government is intrinsically connected to the way we are to live lives of holiness. And so there are a few things in all of the Christian life this morning where more of us are skewed and messed up with our view on the subject of politics and government. This messed up view has led us to be involved in spewing hatred, promoting discord and rebellion, and the issue of government in our days has caused us to amass a great number of teachers to tickle our ears with conspiracies and innuendos. Peter lived during a time, please hear me this morning, where Christians lived in utter terror from their government officials. Utter terror. And if you think you can stand and say the United States is a place where we live in terror, you ain't seen nothing yet. And Peter, what does he say to those people? 
where Christianity was a bad word, where Christianity, the very uttering that you were a Christian, could put you in jail, have you lose your job and your family, and even as Peter will one day lose his life for it. What does Peter have to say? A man who lost his life at the hands of government officials for preaching Christ. What does he say? Does he set up large protests? Does he hand out banners? Does he break out into a diatribe against the emperor? Does he use his time in the pulpit uh, to pound the platform of a political action group or political party? Not at all, brothers and sisters. What Peter says is the opposite. Honor the emperor and be good citizens. Let me remind you that we stand not on what a political party does or says, but on the word of God. And Peter reminds us we are to honor the emperor and be good citizens. So how are we to do it? Let's look very quickly. I have two points this morning. The government's authority and then our responsibility. And so let's understand that this morning. We need to understand that the authority that the government has, no matter what authority it is, including the authority of the government of the United States, number one is mandated by God. It's mandated by God. Please understand this. The plan and purposes of human government were not started by our founding fathers. It was started in the mind of God when he created people. You see, in Romans 13:1, we're reminded of this truth, that no authority except that which has been instituted by God exists. Let me say that again. There is no authority except that which is instituted by God will ever exist. God doesn't wonder on election day who's going to be the winner. God doesn't say, oops, we should have campaigned a little harder. Why did that bad guy get into office? God mandated that authorities would be placed, and he was the one that put it into place. Now notice this mandate comes out in Jesus' conversation with Pontius Pilate. Jesus has been beaten. He's been abused. And he stands before the most powerful person in the region, Pilate. And Pilate says to him, you know, I have all the power to release you or to condemn you. And what is Jesus' response in John 19, 1? You would have no authority over me, Pontius Pilate, at all, unless it had been given to you from above. Let it be heard from this pulpit to every king and president, senator and congressman, that you hold no authority unless the God, our Father in heaven, gives it to you. It would be good for our friends in Washington to remember that. But notice that because God mandates it, that government then is the middleman, not the end all. God is the middleman, not the end all. Psalm 103, 19 says, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. So if God is supreme and does as he will, and his plans and decrees most surely will come to pass, then what role does government play? The, the role it plays is they're God's middle management. They're stewards given charge over a part of God's creation. Peter addresses them and reminds the middlemen of God that whether it's the emperor who is supreme or his group of governors, they are all to know that they are to be in submission to the supreme rule of God. It begins with the head honcho, and in our government, it is the president. And it goes all the way down to the local dog catcher. Every authority that has been established is a middle man or middle woman of God. And so what that means then, if God is the boss and their middle management, what it means is that governments, all governments, all authorities can be moved by God. It can be moved by God. Because God's supreme, because he is the only authority, the leaders of this world only simply being the middle managers, God holds the right and the prerogative to do with them what he will. So God reserves the right to increase a man or a woman's authority, to give them even greater ability, and in some ways greater ability to even do evil. God says, I reserve that right to place that difficult or hateful or, or evil person 
into leadership, and I do so because I've got a plan and a purpose, and I may allow that to take place. But he also reserves the right to impeach a leader, to take him out of leadership. Proverbs 21.1 reminds us of this truth. It tells us that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. We may think that our president has the supreme authority. God says, he's in my hand. I'm the one who rules. To the greatest dictator in our world, God says, you're just my middle managers. And I hold the terms of your contract. You see, we forget that as Christians. The problem that we have with our politics and our government isn't the government. Our problem is we don't have a robust theology of who's in charge. If we understood who's in charge, then we wouldn't be so pushed and pressed and and downtrodden when middle managers seem to get their way because we will remember that not only do we know the boss, but we're in the boss's family. And he knows us, and he promises that he will care for us, no matter who rules over us. Turn in your Bibles for a moment to the book of Daniel. To the book of Daniel. Keep your uh, place in 1 Peter. But in Daniel chapter 2, and here's another great example of, of a man who had to rule under a very difficult man, who proved that it was difficult at times to be a Christian when the leader above you did not like the things of God. But we notice that Daniel was able to do great things because God was with him. In Daniel chapter 2, starting in verse 20, Nebuchadnezzar, who's a wicked king, a wicked, there's no checks and balances with Nebuchadnezzar. He's the, he's the, the go-to guy. He's the head honcho of the group. He can do whatever he wants and nobody will question it. Well, the problem is, is God's given Nebuchadnezzar a dream. And Nebuchadnezzar doesn't know what to do with this dream. And God says, the way I move a person, the way I move a leader, is I give them dreams that trouble them, and then I give the interpretation to one of my own. And Daniel, who's in exile, who is a foreigner in Nebuchadnezzar's nation, is the one who gets the answer. And notice the words of Daniel Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven and answered and said, Blessed be the name of the God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. God changes times and seasons. Listen to what he says. He removes kings and sets up kings. How would you like to utter those words to King Nebuchadnezzar who could have you killed in an instant? Hey, by the way, my God can take you down and he can raise you up. Notice he says, he gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and you have made known to me what what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. God is in charge. And if you understand that, then the things of this world won't get you so fired up. That when you turn on the TV and they talk about all hell breaking loose, you can say, that's fine, God predicted that. And God says he will bring us through safely to the end. We need to understand that God moves people, especially in the way of governments. We can take solace in the fact that no matter how bad our leaders take us down a road, that we have a God who is in charge, that each of them are held in his hand and are there for as long as he will allow them to be, no matter whether they are kings or presidents, dictators or judges. So what is government then to do as their middle, God's middlemen? Notice the final thing about their authority is that they should maintain liberty and justice for all. The job of the government, and I want you to understand this because we, we many times think that if I was in government, I would do things a lot differently, and we sound all cavalier. I would do this, or I would do that, and they're a bunch of morons, and, and I'm a smart person, and I want you to understand that God places a high respect on the issue of government, because government has the job of dealing with two extremes, anarchy and tyranny. 
anarchy. Everybody does what they want with no thought or regard for anybody else's feelings or safety or concern. Tyranny is a group of individuals who are doing all that they want with no thought of what it will do to the rest of the people that are under their care and oversight. The job of the government is to balance those things in a very difficult spot because we can always allow people to have freedoms which will allow people to have anarchy because they'll do what they deem right and what they deem necessary and then we can also have it where a government says that a person can't do anything without them telling them, telling the people that they can do so. I want you to look at every political debate that is out there and understand that the difficulty that our government has is balancing those two things. That doesn't mean that we don't give our two cents. It doesn't mean that we don't have our position. But let's understand that the job that those people have been given is a difficult one. Because what may seem like anarchy to one person is freedom. And what may seem like tyranny from another person is protection. And what we need to understand is that they're never going to get it perfect. That's why we need to be careful that we don't look at the speck in our government's eye before we look at the log in our eye. We need to understand that do we do everything perfect? Do we live a life of holiness and of perfection? No, there's good days and there are bad days. We're going to have good days in government and we're going to have bad days in government. And our desire and our hope shouldn't be that God just keeps kicking people out, but that God would allow us, no matter what the political sphere or our situation is, that we would bring glory and honor to him. And so what the government's job is to do is twofold. Write these down. The government is to punish vice, okay? The word punish is a Greek word that is incredibly strong. It means to avenge, to squash, literally. Their job is when a wrongdoer does something wrong, when he preys on society, God expects, he demands that government deals with it and deals with it in such a way that they inflict the avenging of that wrong as if it's done by God himself. That's a lot of room God has given government. Notice it says that they are to punish the evildoer. And so what God says is, I know there's going to be evildoers, and I don't want vigilante things going on, meaning I don't want Tim going around and saying, well, you've done wrong, so I'm going to punish you. I'm going to set up a system that allows a group of people to be as objective as sinful people can be to arrest those individuals, to bring them to a place of punishment, and even in some societies to bring them to a place of death. And God gives what seemingly is a great amount of latitude to uh, a society. And what is his response in Romans 13? He says, if you don't like their punishment, then don't do evil things. Because it's the evil ones, it's the ones who are doing wrong that are the ones that are getting into trouble. Now notice, that's the one side of the government, but notice their other side of what they do is to promote virtue. So they punish vice, they punish the evildoers, but Peter says they need to promote virtue. They need to be speaking well. And they need to be lifting up those who are good citizens. And so what Peter is saying is government... Pursue those who are doing wrong. I want that. I don't want anybody just breaking into my house. I don't want people hurting my children. I want people to have fear when the police car comes down the road if you've committed a crime. I want that to happen. But I also want a society to know that it's not that we just live out of fear, but we live out of a deep desire to be known as good and faithful citizens. And so what Peter says is, I want you to pursue good and I want governments to applaud that. It would do well for kings and presidents to speak well of their people who serve in their communities and nation well. To show kindness and favor to people who are willing to help out their brothers and to serve their community at large. So here's the place that government holds. This is their authority. This is what God has given them as the job to do. And yet... What we need to totally bring into what we need to bring into a total perspective is that all that Peter is saying now is being done by one of the most ruthless leaders of all of history. 
This isn't where he's sitting there saying, hey, do this because my guy's on the throne. He's saying, do this, and the guy that I'm talking about is going to hang me upside down on a cross and take my life. This guy, this Nero guy who's in Rome, who I say honor, who has the authority given to him by God, is going to take Christians and make them lanterns, light them on fire so that we can have chariot races. This is human history. This guy that Peter is going to tell us to honor and to respect is a guy who's going to burn down all of Rome and blame the Christians for doing it, which causes worldwide persecution for the Christian. Peter has every right to stand here in America and tell us that the government of America has authority because the government of America is a kid show in comparison to what Nero was doing in Peter's day. And he says, you got to... You've got to understand the authority that they have. It's God-given whether you like it or not. So here's the rub. What's our responsibility? We see the Christian's responsibility next. So notice what he says in verse 13. You need to be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. As aliens and strangers, you and I are called to pay our allegiance to God. To give him all the praise and honor that's due his name. But we also have the responsibility to serve those in authority as well. How are we to do it? Notice it begins by submitting to authority. Be subject. Peter uses the word hupotasso. It's a military word. And I want you to understand what this word means when he says be subject. He's, He's telling you, okay, get in your mind the military for a moment. And he says, first of all, hupotasso means that you know your proper rank. In the military, you uh, are told right away you're a private. You're at the bottom of uh, the pecking order. And there's corporals and captains and lieutenants and, and, and generals and all those that are in between those. And you have a certain place, a certain rank within that army. Christians need to understand their rank in the world. While all of us are equal before God, there are some of us, and in fact most of us, have authority over somebody, but we also are under the authority of someone else. And we need to know who we have authority over and who has authority over us. And so let me just give you an example. I have authority over my children. I have authority in my business. I have authority within this church. But when I head out on Route 47 here and drive 49 miles an hour, and I see a car behind me with lights, I can't say, well, you just pulled over, Tim Bedall. I'm an important figure. He's going to say, I don't care who you are. I'm the authority, and I have authority over you in this way. Now, the policeman can't say, I think your kid should eat more vegetables, and I think you should uh, take your wife out for Valentine. He doesn't have authority in that way, but he has authority to maintain order on the roadway, so he has authority. And so we need to recognize where our proper place is, who has authority over us and whom we might have authority over in our own lives. Notice the second thing is that it's not only knowing your proper rank, but it is therefore then doing what you're told. So when it says be subject to all earthly authorities, including that of government, you need to know that you're under government because God has mandated that government be over us, but it is also the job for us to then do what we're told. The idea is is that when uh, an authority tells us to do something, we do it, and we do it in a present imperative way. Hupotasso means that uh, what it's done is it's done on a continual basis. We don't think about it, we do it. We're told to do something, we've told to follow laws, we follow laws. What if we don't like the laws? Well, we follow them anyway. And so we are to obey. Peter is telling us, he's commanding us, it's found in the commanding voice to tell us that as a spiritual father and apostle and church leader that we are to submit to the governing authorities on a continual basis. Finally, Hupotasso speaks of the heart behind such action. He doesn't say cross your arms and say, well, I guess because Peter told me I have to follow the government, well, then I'll do it, but I don't want to. Sounds like my four-year-old's response to many things. 
Well, I guess because you told me, but I'm not going to be happy doing it. Peter says, when he uses the word hupotasso, that it speaks of being of submission being done willingly. That you say, you know what? I'm going to willingly do that. I'm not going to fight you and meet you at every step of the way, calling you all kinds of names, pursuing all kinds of sin. I'm going to do what I'm told. Why? For the Lord's sake, Peter says. For the Lord's sake. And what that means is this. Again, bringing the military metaphor into picture, what Peter tells us is you need to obey as a private, you need to obey your colonel or your lieutenant. And maybe that lieutenant and colonel isn't the greatest colonel or lieutenant. Maybe they are absolutely abysmal at leading. Maybe they're leading in all kinds of what seemingly is sinful ways of debauchery and evil. God says, you submit to them, you do what they are told, and you do so in a willing way, not because you're just serving them. They're just a corporal. They're just a lieutenant. I'm the commander-in-chief. I'm the one who's in charge. And I've built a system that is going to have generals and lieutenants and corporals. And wherever you find yourself in that, you're not the commander-in-chief. Neither is the guy above you. And so you listen to him as if you're listening to me. That's a hard thing for us as Americans. I'm cringing just by speaking these things. Because that goes against the very nature of who we are. That goes against the very nature of who we are as citizens here in the United States. But notice, he doesn't say this just with government. He says every human institution. So what that means is children, they submit to their parents. Wives are subject to their husbands. Christians are subject to their church leaders and elders. Employees to their employers. Students to their teachers. And citizens to their political leaders. Now notice in verse 15 what he, why he says this. He says this because it's God's will. This is God's will. This is God's will that we would live righteous lives with those who are in authority over us. So let me explain. What Peter is articulating here, and I've heard it said before, that I, I can submit, but I submit to the office, not the person. If that is your response, you go against exactly what Peter is saying, because Peter says he is not talking about those offices, but the people who hold that office. So, I have to understand this. Our, our, our guy is Barack Obama. He's our president. And you don't have to like everything he says. You don't have to like everything he does. You don't have to vote for him. You've got a lot of freedom here in America to do what you want with Barack Obama when it comes to your feelings about things. But let us understand exactly what Peter is saying. He says you need to submit to Barack Obama. Ooh! I don't like that. That makes me cringe. But what we need to remember is it is God who placed Barack Obama into the presidency. And God says, he's my guy. He's my guy, whether you like it or not. He's the one that according to my will and decree, he's there. I, 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 I uh, have placed him there. And I expect you to respect and honor him. Not just the presidency, but honor him, the placeholder of that office, and to do so with respect, and to do so submitting to him. I'm speaking heresy, I know, for some of you. Okay? But this is exactly what Peter is articulating to us. Now, why would we do this? Notice verse 15, to silence the foolish talk around us. People had made a hobby of speaking down to Christians. Nero was known to openly disparage Christians by impugning national crimes against them. The Jewish people that lived around them were anti-Christian because they saw Christians, Jewish Christians, as people who had left the faith, who had walked out on the people of God, and now pursued the heresies of a different teacher and a different leader. So the title of Christian was not one that was any good especially those who had never met a Christian before. So Peter reminds us now twice in verses 12 and 15, when accusations come, your job is to live good lives. Live good lives. Paul says we are to live quiet and peaceable lives. Why? Because people are going to say, those Christians, they're a bad people. 
Those Christians, uh, man, the things that they believe, they're not good for our community. There's going to be a day here in America, and it's coming really quick, that, that people are going to say of Christians, they're no good. You don't want to be around them. And I hope in that day that the people of Hinckley will say, but you know what? I know the Badals, and they're Christians, and they're not a bad people. I can trust him when he runs his business because he's a man of integrity. I watch them how they raise their kids. They love their family. They love, he loves his wife. They're hospitable. They're caring. They protect the well-being of the community around them and the people around them. And so I don't know what you're talking about here, but that's foolishness because I know the Badals, and they're not anything like you say they are. You see, Nero was saying all kinds of stuff. Hear ye, hear ye, everybody. Christians are bad. Stay away from them. Don't get close to them. But then Christians who had neighbors next to him say, but that's Nero. I don't know what you're talking about. Because the Christians I know, they love in ways even greater than the world loves. They care. They're giving. They're kind. They're sacrificial. They're honest. And so what you're talking about, Nero, what you're talking about government officials is completely Nonsense. And so the job of the Christian is to do what? It has to serve God by serving others. Notice verse 16. It says, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. So here we are as citizens, and we may not like the world system that we're under. We may not like the people that are over us, but God says how you serve me is by serving others well. You want to know how you serve me, how you bring glory to me? Be the best employee you can be for that jerk employer that you have. And that means you can't call him a jerk anymore. Okay, because I know what you're thinking. You, Tim, you don't know what kind of boss I have. Peter says, serve them well. And in doing so, you serve God. But you don't know the government that we've got, God. And when you start saying that stuff, it's just messed up because God absolutely does know. And what does he expect? That we as Christians would serve our country well. That we would be the best group of people. We don't have to lobby at all as Christians because people just see our good deeds and they're just in awe of it. Wow, every time a Christian gets involved in something, God blesses it. Remember Joseph with Potiphar? What does Joseph and Potiphar have going on? Joseph is just a servant. And the servant blesses the master because he does well, because he serves well. We're called to do that. We're to serve God by serving others well, notice finally we are to show appropriate regard to all. Verse 17, Peter reminds us we live in a multifaceted world. And so what does he say? He says we're to honor everyone. We're to love the brotherhood. We're to fear God. And we're to honor the emperor. Peter plays a little, has a little play on words here where what he does is he creates a tear, if you will, of how we are to have relationships. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Notice, do you see he uses the same word for honoring everyone as he says for honoring the emperor? What God expects of us is not to elevate the people that are in authority over us, including uh, the emperor or the president, okay? But what he says is, you need to honor them as you honor everyone else. That person's just a man or a woman. They're no different. And so how do we honor everyone? Remember what the scriptures say. We love our neighbor as ourself. But what if that neighbor is an enemy of mine? Well, scripture reminds us we're to love our enemies, to bless those who persecute us. One of the easiest sins right now at Village Bible Church, as it is in most evangelical churches, is to speak words of hatred, discord, and rebellion about our government. It's easy because you won't find anybody who'll, who'll say, you know what, we probably shouldn't say that. It's easy. And we have this, some sort of this religious and righteous indignation that we can say whatever we want about our president. The Bible says, no, you can't because you're to honor everyone and you're to honor the one who's in charge. 
Is that hard? Yeah, sometimes it's hard to honor the salesman who comes into my office. It's hard to honor my employer. It's hard to honor that person that drives me absolutely crazy. But I'm called to love them. I'm called to serve them. I'm called to give them the honor that God says is due to them. Even if it means I'm staying in, stepping into the White House to say hello to the first family, I need to honor them. But what if they do all kinds of crazy stuff? You honor them. Remember who Peter is talking about. Nero. Nero gave Hitler a run for his money. This isn't some nice and warm, fuzzy guy that everybody was glad to have in power. People ran in fear of Nero, and Peter says you got to honor him. You don't raise him above anybody else, but you honor him as everybody else does. And now notice, he says, second, love the brotherhood. So we honor, we serve our community well, but we do an even better job at loving and caring for our community of believers. So we serve one another in this body in even a greater way. So we're known as good neighbors in our neighborhood. We're known as even better Christians in our Christian fellowship. Wow, Tim's a great neighbor. He lets me use power tools and he helps shovel my driveway and he does all of that. I hope that that is said of me as a neighbor in Hinkley, but I hope that you guys would say, man, that may be true of Tim, but let me tell you what Tim does in the body of Christ. And he goes way beyond the call. He loves in a way that, that uh, God has called us to love one another. All of this is done. Notice what Peter says, because we remember who's in charge. He says, fear God. And I think it's quite amazing that the fear of God is the beginning of what? Wisdom. You want wisdom as to know how to serve your government and your country well? You need to fear God. Because in that moment that we fear God, noticing that he reigns supreme, then everything else will figure itself out. Now, I need to close, but I want to share with you, I don't have time for this, and I wondered if I would, but I know there's a lot of questions out there. And I want to answer a couple of these questions. I'm not going to do it now, but I want to share some of the questions because I know people say, wait a minute, Tim, you haven't addressed this, this, and this, okay? And so here are the questions that by video I'm going to uh, share with you this week because I don't have time in the pulpit to do so. Number one, is it ever all right to go against the government's authority? Let me give you a very short answer. Yeah, it's all right at times to do so. I'm not saying that we just take a beating and don't ever speak, Okay. So we'll answer that this week to come. And there's biblical reasons to do so, but we need to caveat it in the way that the Bible does. Number two, we need to be reminded to speak words, greater words of repentance and not revolution. Do you know that the Bible never calls us to revolt? You show me a Bible verse that says, Tim, as citizens, we're called to revolt because it's not in the Scriptures. And we do a lot of talking of revolution, especially in our day and age today, than we ever have before as Christians. What are the words we're supposed to speak? Words of repentance. Turn to Jesus. I won't go more into that because I'll talk about it later. Number three, we are to engage in the political process, but we shouldn't expect much change. I don't know of any national revival that has happened here in America because there's been a president in the Oval Office. And you say, Tim, how much history you know? I know history pretty well. I don't know a lot of things well, but I know history. Revivals have taken place because the people of God have got on their knees and prayed and sought the Lord's face. And in that day, God has healed the land. That's God's way. It seems foolish to man, but it's the power of God. Understand number four, and I'll talk about this. God's power, not man's politics, will change the world. Let me say that again. God's power, not man's politics, will change the world. You know, Peter was in jail one day in the book of Acts. And you know what happened? He didn't say, hey, everybody, bring your banners and let's start protesting. A group of people in a small little home behind locked door got on their knees and started praying. And in a cell far away, Peter himself praying in that prison cell would see his chains fall off and the doors open up and he would be released. The foolish things of the world God uses to profound the wise. Let me close with this thought. 
It's, a, it's a, a, an anonymous letter that was written by a guy named Dignatus. I hope I'm saying that right. He, he wrote this in A.D. 130, and he was a tutor of the emperor Marcus Aurelius. There's not much known about him, why he wrote this, but it says Christians are not differentiated, go ahead and put that up there for us, from the other people by country and language or customs. You see, they do not live in cities of their own or speak some strange dialect. They live in both Greek and foreign cities, wherever chance has put them. They follow local customs and clothing, food, and other aspects of life. But at the same time, they demonstrate to us the unusual form of their citizenship. They live in their own native lands, but as aliens. Every foreign country is to them their native country, and every native land as a foreign country. They marry and have children just like everyone else, but they do not kill unwanted babies. They offer a shared table, but not a shared bed. They are passing their days on earth, but are citizens of heaven. They obey the appointed laws. Notice what he says, and go beyond the laws in their own lives. They love everyone, but are persecuted by all. They are put to death and gain life. They are poor and yet make, make many rich. They are dishonored and yet gain glory through dishonor. Their names are blackened and yet they are cleared. They are mocked and blessed in return. They are treated outrageously and behave respectfully to others. When they do good, they're punished as evildoers. When they are punished, they rejoice as if being given new life. They're attacked by the Jews as aliens and persecuted by the Greeks. But notice what it says. Yet those who hate them cannot give any reason for their hostility. Let that be true of us in the year 2013. Let's pray. Father God, I know this is hard to hear. Lord, I know that the political uh, arena today is as heated as it's ever been before, more divided than it's been probably since the days of the Civil War. And yet, Lord, let us be reminded that our call is not to try to change policies and practices of political parties, but to live upright and holy lives. Oh, Lord, I pray that these would be a discerning people, I've not addressed every issue. I've stayed true to the text. And in doing so, many questions are left unanswered. Give them wisdom to understand how to engage the political process, how to know when it is right to protest, when it is right to stay quiet. Lord, when it's even right to have to rebel. We have words of Scripture. And Lord, I pray that those words would be found and would be spoken that our people would be Bereans who would study the scriptures and see for themselves what you have to say to them. But Lord, let this truth of this scripture remind us that we are to be submissive, to be submissive to all in authority. Let that be our banner this week so that, Lord, that even though people accuse us of doing wrong, that the world may glorify God on the day of visitation. Lord, we pray that we will honor you in this way. In Christ Jesus' name we pray, amen.